traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-52, Palmyra He was the first Roman to visit the site in nearly a thousand years. The marble columns and majestic temples evoked a time of ancient glory, and the place itself still bore the name of Tadmor, or Palmyra. But the stark descent from better days was also pretty apparent. The one-time city that challenged Rome was now a minor Arab village, huddled inside the spacious courtyard of the Temple of Bel. The Roman visitor who took it in was actually an old friend, a Renaissance composer, author, and explorer named Pietro de la Valle. Way back in Rediscovery episode R2, I discussed De La Valle's main contributions to early Near Eastern scholarship. In 1616, he obtained inscribed bricks from Ur, the first hard examples of cuneiform writing ever brought to the West. But a few months earlier, while making a journey from Damascus to Aleppo, De La Valle made a detour to visit the ruins of Palmyra. At the time, Syria was ruled by the Ottomans, who'd enlisted a series of Lebanese princes to govern the local district. As it happened, the territory was currently between princes, and the next to arrive, Fakir al-Din II, would be known for renovating the Mamluk castle that overlooks the site. For De La Valle, it was a brief stopover on a pretty epic journey, one that would eventually see him traveling through Persia and southern India. But he was likely among the first to stir Palmyra's memory. In the latter part of the 17th century, two British merchants, Lenoy and Goodyear, managed to visit Palmyra twice. On the first occasion, they'd lost all their possessions to a local sheikh and been forced to flee for their lives. But on the second, much better armed expedition, they scored a major coup. According to archaeologist Judith Weingarten, they'd brought along a Dutch artist named Hofstede, who spent four days making a detailed sketch of the entire site. In 1695, a version of the sketch was published in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society of London. It was the first image of the ancient city to reach a widespread audience. 
1751, the Palmyrene expedition of Wood and Dawkins returned with a folio of architectural details, ones that, according to historian Richard Stoneman, served as templates for a new classicism in architecture as important as the Athenian books of James Stewart and Nicholas Rivette. And 25 years later, in 1776, Edward Gibbon released Volume 1 of his The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, re-injecting Palmyra's story into the modern world. It's safe to say that from that point onward, the story gained a second life, inspiring writers and poets and painters and eventually even podcasters. Because just like when I first heard it, in episode 118 of Mike Duncan's The History of Rome podcast, it's the kind of story that gets under your skin and keeps demanding to be retold. So, where we are right now is a good place to pause, because at this moment, the city of Palmyra had never been touched by an enemy. It was still standing in all its glory, slowly built up over prosperous centuries and recently embellished by the Duke's Odenathus and his queen and consort Zenobia. The temples to the Palmyrene gods, the colonnade adorned with statues, the palace, if there ever was a palace, and the funerary temple of King Odenathus all constructed of shining white marble accentuated with bronze. But though Palmyra was still intact, there were ample signs the city was facing its moment of ultimate crisis. You could read it in the makeshift barricades, the grim faces full of fear, and the determined stance of weary soldiers defending the undefendable. Or you could just pull out wide and focus on the 40,000 Roman soldiers completely encircling the city. Aurelian had come a long, long way through a hostile desert in the baking sun, and he wasn't about to return to Rome until he'd gotten just what he came for. Which basically raises the only real question. What did Aurelian want? Well, he wanted the eastern provinces back, and wanted them completely subservient to Rome, and, well, for what it was worth, he kind of already had that. But, again, if he was really blue-skying, there was one more piece to the eastern puzzle. He wanted to keep Palmyra intact to defend the Persian frontier. He couldn't afford to tie down legions, he'd need to reclaim the Gallic Empire, and the Palmyrene army had already spent decades keeping the Persians in check. So, contrary to what you might think, Aurelian had no interest in destroying Palmyra, or its trade, or even its army. He just wanted to replace its treasonous rulers with someone loyal to Rome. Its territories would shrink back down to what it had held before Odenathus, from the boundary marker east of Emesa to the west bank of the Euphrates. And whatever successor Aurelian chose would rule not as ducks or imperator, but in the more traditional role of doomvir or chief magistrate. 
In a letter quoted in the Historia Augusta, Aurelian makes his pitch. I bid you surrender, promising that your lives shall be spared, and with the condition that you, Zenobia, together with your children, shall dwell wherever I, acting in accordance with the most noble senate, shall appoint a place. Your jewels, your gold, your silver, your silks, your horses, your camels, you shall hand over to the Roman treasury. As for the people of Palmyra, their rights shall be preserved. And, well, if you've come this far, you can probably guess her response. Whatever must be accomplished in matters of war must be done by valor alone. You demand my surrender as though you were not aware that Cleopatra preferred to die a queen rather than remain alive however high her rank. She then mocked him for his difficulties crossing the desert and threatened him with forces which we are expecting from every side. On the remote chance she wasn't just bluffing, Aurelian tightened the blockade. The Historia claims he gave his attention to everything that seemed incomplete or neglected, for he cut off the reinforcements which the Persians had sent, and he tampered with the squadrons of Saracens and Armenians, bringing them over to his side, some by forcible means and some by cunning. So this part is pretty interesting. The Armenians and Persians or more likely Parthians, who'd supported Zenobia in previous battles, were very possibly refugees living in Palmyrene territory. But these new reinforcements appear to be different, and I'll circle back to them in a minute. Apart from keeping her allies at bay, Aurelian monopolized local resources, making sure no food or supplies made their way to Palmyra. But still, not everything went Aurelian's way. The Historia reports that during the blockade, the emperor was wounded by an arrow, which, as Gaius Caesar or Richard the Lionheart could tell you, can sometimes take a nasty turn. But Aurelian, for whatever reason, took the arrow wound in stride and continued to prosecute the siege. For the situation inside the city, I'll turn to historian Pat Southern. Facing Aurelian's army without sufficient food supplies, unable to break out, and having lost her allies, Zenobia's position became less and less tenable. Her choices were limited. She could wait until the Palmyrenes were so weakened that they might possibly turn against her, and one of the army officers or one of the nobles might try to arrange a peace with Aurelian. She could surrender and place herself at the mercy of the Roman emperor. She could gather her army and offer battle, or she could escape. Escape where, you might ask, but you won't like the answer. Because, in her moment of ultimate need, Zenobia turned to the Persians. Okay, so let's pause for a moment and chart the recent trajectory. Just a few months earlier, Zenobia had ruled from Ancyra in the north to Alexandria in the south, 
and her solid base in Roman Syria was virtually uncontested. Now she held a single city, and even that was on shaky ground, and it decided her only hope for survival was to turn to her bitterest enemy. Odenathus had made a career of teaching the Persians to fear the Palmyrenes. What was she even trying to save if she needed the Persians to save it? At the moment, the Persian Shahanshah was King Bahram I. And if you take the Historia at its word, he'd already been sending help. The reinforcements repulsed by Aurelian may have been sent by Bahram and Narse, likely in hopes of prolonging the conflict and further weakening both sides. Then, as soon as conditions were ripe, the Persians could move in with a sizable army and finish whoever was left. Or, if Zenobia emerged triumphant, she'd owe the Sassanids a pretty big favor, and might be compelled to accept the role of reluctant Persian vassal. The only outcome they had to fear was a decisive Roman victory, which is very likely the primary reason the Sassanids hedged their bets. Sure, they were happy to send a few troops to harass the Romans for old time's sake, but not enough to make Aurelian angry and provoke a major response. But, again, regardless of the reasons, the Sassanids appeared to be offering support. And, in her state of sheer desperation, Zenobia reached for the lifeline. According to Zosimus, the Palmyrenes then called a council in which it was determined to fly to the Euphrates and request aid of the Persians against the Romans. Having thus determined, they set Zenobia on a female camel, which is the swiftest kind of that animal and much more swift than horses, and conveyed her out of the city. Again, like during so much of this story, we have zero information on Vabalathus, who seems to be perfecting his magical power of removing himself from historical narratives. But since trying to break through Roman lines was much more dangerous than staying behind, it's likely he was left in Palmyra in the care of her ruling council. It's hard to picture a more striking scene. Zenobia, alone under cover of darkness, riding away at breakneck speed out into the eastern desert. Her initial thought may have been making for the Palmyrene fortress at Halabie, which was also on the most direct route from Palmyra to the Euphrates. But for whatever reason, it's at least implied she didn't make that choice. Either way, the distance involved was around 120 miles, and Zenobia likely made the journey in the course of a single day. Somewhere, finally ragged and exhausted, she came across some minor village, situated along the Euphrates with river-crossing boats. Whether she made a demand of some gobsmacked local or resorted to stealth and took what she needed, Zenobia quickly acquired a craft and began to slip from shore. And it was exactly there and exactly then that the Roman soldiers arrived. 
Now, if this had been at Halabie, the fortress later known as Zenobia, it's almost certain the Palmyrene garrison would have screened her escape, and likely even provided a bodyguard to escort her into Persia. But nothing along these lines is recorded, and Zenobia was apparently alone. As Zosimus records, once he'd learned of her escape, the emperor had exerted all his industry to send out horsemen in pursuit of her. And they succeeded in taking her as she was crossing the Euphrates in a boat, and brought her to Aurelian. Take it for what you will, but despite her earlier threats to the contrary, there's no hint Zenobia tried to kill herself to avoid Roman captivity. Cutting to the chase like Zosimus does doesn't really let it sink in. The return journey of two to three days gave Zenobia plenty of time to think, either rehashing where it all went wrong or contemplating her fate. She wasn't some innocent like Cleopatra Selene, caught in the desert by Octavian's troops. It was her decision to attack Arabia, her decision to annex Egypt, and her decision to take a stab at conquering Anatolia. The entire conduct of the recent war was her responsibility. In Roman eyes, she was another usurper, and Zenobia had at least some familiarity with the fates of similar figures. The vast majority were killed in battle, or failing that by their very own troops. Others, like the sun-priest Samsigerimus, were likely tried and executed. But the particulars of Zenobia's case raised one additional alternative. The fact that, along with Roman titles, she'd cast herself as an eastern queen gave Aurelian the necessary pretext to display her back home in a triumph. For the first time in her life, Zenobia must have approached Palmyra with a palpable sense of dread, which was mirrored by her people's desolation at learning she'd been captured alive. Their immediate response went one of two ways. Zosimus reports that some Palmyrenes resolved to expose themselves courageously and to hazard their being made captives in defense of their city while others, on the contrary, employed humble and submissive gestures from the walls, and entreated pardon for what was past. The emperor accepting these tokens, and commanding them to fear nothing, they poured out of the town with presents and sacrifices in their hands. Aurelian paid due respect to the holy things, received their gifts, and sent them away without injury. And, just like that, the Emperor Aurelian had won control of Palmyra. There's little detail on the prisoners taken, but they likely included the magical disappearing boy Vabalathus, the senior Palmyrene general Zabai, and the only one we're really sure of, the Athenian scholar Cassius Longinus. Per Aurelian's orders, all the senior Palmyrene leadership would be taken to Emesa to stand trial. Well, okay, not all the leadership. 
A later inscription from the Temple of Bel mentions Septimius Hadudan, illustrious senator, son of Septimius Ogelu Makai, who had aided the army of Aurelian Caesar. Hadudan was symposiarch of the Temple of Bel, and for those of you who like interesting tidbits, his father Ogelu was the very same guy who'd given Odenathus his throne. It's likely the rich and powerful family were quick to distance themselves from Zenobia and freely offer any local support the Roman Empire might need. And speaking of burying the hatchet, it's around this time the Romans received their very first Persian embassy. Bahram likely covered his bases. This was all one big misunderstanding. Those Persian squadrons were totally rogue. And by the way, here's a train of gifts to celebrate your victory. The Historia Augusta records the gifts as those garments encrusted with jewels that we now see in the Temple of the Sun. Then, too, the Persian dragon flags and headdresses, and a species of purple such as no nation ever afterward offered or the Roman world beheld. The author speculates it may have been made using exotic Indian sandics. Aurelian was happy to accept the gifts and even sign a treaty with Persia. After all, he needed the East to stay quiet while he reconquered the West. As he prepared to make the journey home, the emperor appointed a few individuals to keep an eye on the situation and make sure Palmyra stayed loyal. The first was Sandarion, put in charge of a Palmyrene garrison of 600 Roman archers. The second was Marcellinus, installed as governor of Mesopotamia in the border city of Nisibis. According to Zosimus, Marcellinus held the title of Rector Orientis, similar to Priscus and Odenathus, and may have been entrusted by Aurelian to oversee the whole Roman East. Which makes more sense when you factor in that Aurelian wasn't making any drastic changes. The provincial governors who'd back Zenobia, in Egypt, Cilicia, and even Syria, were apparently being left in place to finish out their terms. There was little concern about their loyalty, now that Zenobia was off the board, but still, it probably gave Aurelian a warm fuzzy to leave Marcellinus in charge. A third figure appointed by Rome may have been Septimius Hadudan, the only recorded Palmyrene senator apart from Odenathus. The evidence is mainly circumstantial and not corroborated in the written sources, but a local figure would have been needed to exercise Roman control. The war itself had done enough to diminish Palmyra's once powerful army. The remaining forces were likely retasked with patrolling the eastern desert. It's also very likely that Aurelian rewarded his Tanuk allies, with gold, trade goods, and expanded territories taken from the Palmyrenes. 
And I know you think I skipped the part where Zenobia was dragged to Aurelian in chains, and they shared some kind of pithy exchange about empire and hubris and the will of the gods. And I mean, sure, if this was a movie, that'd be the critical scene. But the exchange recorded in the Historia Augusta is pretty generic stuff. Why is it, Zenobia, that you dared to show insolence to the emperors of Rome? To this she replied, it is said, You, I know, are an emperor indeed, for you win victories. But Gallienus and Aureolus and the others I never regarded as emperors. But I'll also note Aurelian's reply to those who chided him for conquering a woman. Those very persons who find fault with me now would accord me praise in abundance did they know what manner of woman she is. In 1888, an English painter named Herbert Gustav Schmaltz captured a powerful scene. In it, the captive Queen Zenobia, in golden handcuffs bound with a chain, takes one final look at her city as the sun descends in the west. If you've ever seen a painting of Zenobia, this is likely the one you saw. It shows the queen with a sense of melancholy, but otherwise regal, proud, and unbroken. Essentially depicting the idealized figure her legend tends to evoke. The painting contains a few interesting elements. It shows burning buildings and toppled statues, which, as we've just heard, wasn't really the case. Also, the relief just behind her is the Helios Metope, recovered 16 years earlier from the ruins of Troy by archaeologist Heinrich Schliemann. But, minor details aside, the moment Schmaltz was trying to capture is the moment we're faced with now because this was the last time Queen Zenobia would ever see Palmyra. First, she'd be forced to retrace her steps to the site of her recent defeat. As the closest major Syrian city, Emesa was chosen to hold the trials of the senior Palmyrian leadership. And there is one aspect of the trials that's very, very depressing— because, during most of our story, we've been taking Zosimus at his word. And if we continue doing so now, it paints a very unflattering picture. With that said, I'll just quote from his history. Zenobia, coming into court, pleaded strongly in excuse of herself, and produced many persons who had seduced her as a simple woman, and among the rest Longinus. Being found guilty of the crimes laid to his charge, he received from the emperor sentence of death. Several besides Longinus suffered upon the accusation of Zenobia. The Historia Augusta also adds that Aurelian killed many who had advised her to begin and prepare and wage the war, but the woman he saved for his triumph. The story aligns with Roman bias of depicting their enemies as craven figures, as well as the bias that only a male could have masterminded her rebellion. As historian Pat Southern remarks, 
If this complete renunciation of her responsibilities is true, it is a departure from her previous displays of courage from the first moments of her rule. She argues the portrayal is likely propaganda, designed to discourage Zenobia's supporters and cement Aurelian's control. If so, as would soon be seen, it was totally ineffective. After the trials and executions, there was no more reason to linger in the east, and Aurelian made plans to return with his army to Rome. But before he did, he wanted to make sure that everyone knew just what he'd accomplished, partly to give any rivals fair warning of exactly who they were dealing with. As historian Pat Southern reports, the Antioch Mint issued coins with the legend Restitutor Orientis, Restorer of the East. And while he was on the subject, Aurelian got the Roman Senate to bestow a series of victory titles, including Gothicus, Sarmaticus, Armeniacus, Parthicus, and Adiabenicus. There's one last fairly colorful tidbit recorded by chronicler John Malalis. Zenobia was paraded through the streets of Antioch, riding on a camel and bound in chains. Then, Aurelian built a structure in Antioch and placed Zenobia on top of it in chains for three days. He called the structure he built Triumph. He then took her down from there and led her off to Rome. The most disturbing part about the scene is I actually kind of buy it. A triumph in Rome was de rigueur, but it was also very, very important to thoroughly humiliate Zenobia in Syria's greatest city. There was no better way to show the East the price of opposing Rome. As the army left Syria for Anatolia, Zenobia likely held on to what was left. She and her son were still alive, and Palmyra still endured.